If you wouldn't mind, please turn to Ezekiel 37. This, if you know it, it's the Valley of the Dry Bones, which is, in my opinion, one of the coolest pictures in the Bible, one of them. Now, Matthew Holbrook has said in a uh, high school group a lot, like, uh, if up in heaven, there's probably going to be like this sort of like movie theater sort of thing where we get to go see and we get to see like the three o'clock showing of the Red Sea parting or something like that. But you actually be, get to be a part of the story like in the story, right? Now, for me, this is where I would go, right here, Ezekiel 37, because I think this would just be such a cool thing to witness. So read with me, verse one. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I, saw, I, w- I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. From this, what I want you guys to mainly grasp is just the awe-inspiring nature of God bringing to life anything, even something that he just created or something that he's just really, he already has the framework, he's putting something on. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam getting created, right? We see that he's made and he's formed, you guys have read it before, and breath is pushed into his nostrils by God, and then he lives. It's not until we have God's breath go into him that he truly lives. This is the same way with these bones. Now, I want you guys to imagine, right, we, as a high school group, most of us went up on a backpacking trip into the Sierras up at Bishop just not too long ago, and we climbed up to this really, really tall mountain, and then you look, and there's just this huge, just gorge just going down, and it's really, really pretty, right? And all I could think of unfortunately, was back to this really gross picture of bones layering the ground. Just tons and tons of bones. And not just any bones, dry bones. Like, you know, you can have a carcass that has, you know, some skin left on it and it's you know, still gross. But like dry bones, that means they've been a long, long time. They've been dead for a long time. And God says... Can these bones live? And Ezekiel very appropriately answers, Oh, Lord God, you know. I don't, but you know. And so he tells him, Well, tell them. I'm going to make you live. And so this is where I think it gets really cool. is because the bones come together, and there's a noise and a rattling sound. You know, bones making noise isn't that hard. But then it's, you know, the noise. That's all we get, like, the noise. What is the noise of flesh growing? 
I have no idea, and it's gross to think about because it's just ugh. like what is the picture I used last service that apparently nobody got was in Pirates of the Caribbean. You have all of the skeletons that are all walking around, you know, stuff like that. Hardly anybody got that. So I'm going to try Indiana Jones this time. When they open the Ark of the Covenant, right, they're all looking in, and then they all melt, right? Put that in reverse, and that's what this picture looks like, right? Flesh melting onto the bones. That's, you know, really gross. One of the grossest scenes in movie history is that scene. So now reverse that and put it onto the bodies. But they're still not alive yet. No, we don't see them come to life, come to yeah, life until breath enters them. And we see that all the bones are rattling, everything's going. And then God says, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Again, now that some of you I saw nodded when you said Pirates of the Caribbean. Imagine all the army getting up, and they're all skeletons. Now they've got the Indiana Jones flesh on them, and now they're this huge army that you're just hiking in the Sierras somewhere and happen to stumble upon. Kind of creepy. But God says, this is my army now. And it references Israel and all that. But this is an awe-inspiring event. We see this all the time in movies, we, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. We get that. We hear all these stories. But we lose the flavor of how miraculous and how powerful and awe-inspiring this is. It's not just zombies getting up off of the ground. It is truly a miraculous event. So when I, as you guys are thinking through things today, I, I want you guys to think through this as not just, yeah, people getting up. It's God breathing to life dead things and how awe-inspiring that is and how nothing can live apart from God's breath breathing into them, even though they might still be there. All right, well, good morning, everybody. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes. I, I, I love saying that. It's so much fun. All right, so this the reason I say that it kind of has a purpose, kind of just fun, but it pertains to what we're talking about this morning. We're discussing, as Winston's already talked about, God bringing things to life. You know, God brought Jesus back to life, so there we go. Connection, yes. And so um, he talked about Ezekiel 37. I'm going to be going over John chapter 11, so if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. We're going to be reading a bit. And so... If you're like me, first thing you do when you turn to a, a chapter in the Bible is you look at the chapter title. Pastor Brian has taught me for like eight years not to do that, but I still do it anyways. And so if you look at John chapter 11, it says the death of Lazarus. Um, it's a story that most of us are familiar with. And so this is the story of the death and then resurrection of Lazarus. Um, so starting from verse 1. <clears throat> now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not with him. After these things, he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of the death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. So the scene here is, so this guy, Lazarus, Jesus knows him, Jesus loves him. He's ill and dying, and Jesus is like, okay, let's wait two days. So they, like, wait around. They're like, hey, let's go to him now. Like, you know, it's been two days. Let's go. And the disciples are like, wait, first of all, there's people there trying to kill us. Second of all, it's been two days. And so he's like, well, let's go anyways. And the disciples are like, well, if he's, he, Jesus says he's asleep. And they're like, well, he's just sleeping. He's going to wake up. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let, let me explain it. He said plainly he's dead. Like, they just didn't get it. So that's what's happening here. And then if you keep reading on, they get there. And the people who were there, Mary and the other Jews, are like, oh, if you'd been here earlier, you could have saved him. But he's dead. So, yeah. And then Jesus is like, oh, you don't believe in me? Well, I'm God. And so, and then he tells them, remove the stone from the tomb. And they're like, he's, he's been in there four days. Like, like, four days. Like, that's half a week. It's like a long time. Four days. And so, four days. Like, I don't know if you've, like, ever, I don't know, four, like, I'm assuming not been, like, around a four-day dead body. But <laughs> I haven't either, just for the record. But, <laughs> but after four days, the body has already started decaying, and it's just not a pretty scene, right? And Jesus is like, yo, move that stone. And he's like, Lazarus, come out. And he's like, walks down. He's like, I'm Lazarus. And it's like, yeah story over not really and so Lazarus is there and they're like oh whoa Jesus is awesome and it says many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary had seen what he did believed in him Um, so as Winston already covered God brings people back from the dead Um, Ezekiel 37 and John 11 are both examples of that and then why does God do this Jesus tells us in verse 4 of this chapter um, it's for the glory of God that the son of God might be glorified Everything that Jesus does in the New Testament, everything that God does is for his glory. Um, The whole reason that Jesus, he knew Lazarus was going to die, and he waited so that when he went, his glory would be even more evident. Because if if he was ill, just sick, and just wouldn't heal him, like he's done that already. People have seen him do that. So he waited four days. Lazarus has been dead, and then he raises him from the dead. Like, 
we, we can't do that today. There have been accounts of people who have died for a couple hours and then come back, like that little kid whose name I don't know. And he, he, he died, and then he wrote the book about it, about um, what he saw in heaven. But that was like 11 minutes. And so this is four days. Like, we can't do that today. And so it just glorifies God more and more the longer that Lazarus was dead. And so it's a clear testament to the glory of God and the power of God. And it points directly to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Many of you might not know this, but I saved my sister from getting hit by a bus. Um, the bus was careening down Chapman at probably 40 miles an hour. Um, and uh, I told her, we were sitting on the couch, and I told her, you know, you can't go outside right now. Right? Like, no. <laughs> we're, we're sitting inside the bus passes on Chapman, and, and she didn't get hit, right? It's awesome. Yay. Um, that's, that's really not how it works. When we talk about a savior, when we talk about someone saving something, there has to be an immediate threat. There has to be a danger. If you save someone from something that's not really a danger, you, you didn't really save them. You know, I, I don't know if any of you guys did this, but I'm sure when you were younger, you'd sit, like, you're sitting somewhere with someone, and you, like, push them and pull them back really fast, and you're like, saved your life! right? Well, not really, because you're the one causing the danger. And, and it's like, it just, it just doesn't work, right? Um, and I think so often it's the same way with, with death. The way that we view spiritual death is we view it as this thing that, that doesn't really matter, that isn't that big a deal. And when we view it that way, what Christ did in bringing us back to life isn't as big of a deal. So today we're going to try and look at a little bit more in-depth of what the spiritual death is, and then about how Christ conquered that. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the, body, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This letter is being written to believers about who they once were. This is a description of all unbelievers, those who are not saved, and of all believers before they were saved. And one of the, thing, one of the things that we can note about this death is that it's universal. All of us walk in this. It says in verse 3, both among whom we all once lived, and then later on, like the rest of mankind, both referring to the universality of this death. Everyone is covered. There's no one exempt. The second thing to note is that we can't escape it of our own volition. This isn't something that you can will your way out of or work your way out of. Be good enough to somehow escape. This death is in our very nature. It says in verse 2 that we were sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath. If you imagine wrath spawning a child, that's who we were. And our inheritance is one of wrath, of one of condemnation. That's what we deserve. That's what we're born into. Now as much as someone might will to be a dog, wish to be a dog, want to be a dog... 
they will not become a dog. I can't sit here and think hard enough, well, if I just try my best, I'll become a dog one day. No, I am by nature a human being. I cannot of my own will change my nature. And it's the same for all of us. We were dead in our trespasses, and apart from a miracle, our nature will not be changed. Continue reading Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see here, but God, this death that we all once walked in, has been canceled out because of the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. And the first thing we note is that he is the one doing the bringing to life. We do not will our way into life. We as dead creatures have no inclination, no desire, but God, in his mercy, wills, gives us the will, gives us the desire, and then does this heart transplant in which we lose our heart of stone and receive a heart of flesh. We are chosen vessels of mercy, and we're ransomed for good works. This death is so great, but the salvation is even greater. What Jesus did on the cross in dying, and then when he rose from the grave, he conquered, he conquered that death. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 50, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and we shall, sorry, and the mortal body puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this death that we all once walked in has been and is conquered. Jesus, in his dying and in his rising, conquered death completely and its consequences. Well, we want to uh, just draw your attention to the fact that central to the whole story of the Bible is the fact that God brings the dead to life. God brought Jesus to life, conquering death, conquering sin, and God brings his children from death to life. And uh, we want to look at that just here for a few more minutes this morning. I'm going to pick up where Matthew left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you turn back there, we're going to be focusing on verse 58. We'll get a little bit of a running start towards 
verse 58, and we'll start at the end of verse 54. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at the end of verse 54. It is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, when we study the Bible, one of the things that should stand out is the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, it provides us with a, a glimpse into understanding what the passage is about, and we want to understand what is the purpose of the therefore. Well, I want to make the argument to you here this morning that the therefore in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, is the most important therefore in the entire Bible. Now, to make that case, let's take a little bit of a peek forward in verse 58. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable. Well, this raises kind of the age-old question. You've heard it asked, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? What wins? Well, I'm not sure, but what if you could be both? What if you could be an unstoppable force and an immovable object? Be like the greatest superhero power ever. But this is what Paul is calling believers to be. Be steadfast, persistently moving toward the goal, steady, unwavering, unstoppable, firm in purpose, not giving to fluctuations or moving off course. Immovable, not distracted by the world, not moved away from the truth, firmly rooted in Christ, not swayed by fleshly desires. Be steadfast, immovable. And this is the call, and the purpose of that is that we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord, to be overflowing in the work of the Lord. So with that in mind, I want you to look back at the word, therefore, that starts the verse in 58. Therefore refers to everything that came before it. And specifically, we look at verse 57, where he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's this victory? Well, Paul has said, that we're more than conquerors. Jesus himself said in, in John 16, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is swallowed up in victory. You see, Jesus overcame death, the ultimate consequence of sin. Jesus overcame the power of sin. We have nothing to fear. Jesus conquered the ultimate enemy. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus' victory demonstrated ultimate power. Power over life, power over death. God's the author of all life and sin brought decay into the world and the ultimate consequence was death. And Jesus, God in the flesh, the author of life, he brings the dead to life. So if you're a servant of Jesus, if you serve Jesus Christ, you serve the one who gives life and who brings the dead to life. If you're a child of God, it's because although you were spiritually dead, God brought you to spiritual life. His ultimate power, his power over sin and death, that power was focused on you like a laser beam and you were brought to life. And why did God do this? Matthew made the point in Ephesians chapter 2 
that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. God brought us to life from spiritual death out of his great love. Even in John 11, before, John, uh, before Jesus brought Lazarus to life, it twice says in that chapter that Jesus loved Lazarus. When Jesus acts to intervene against death, it's always an act of ultimate love. Consider Romans chapter 8. The high schoolers and anchor group will know that every message needs to have a reference to Romans chapter 8. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up from us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then the chapter ends, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus died, was raised, and is now interceding for us, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because his ultimate love for us is a function of his ultimate power. Jesus conquered death. Death was swallowed up in victory, and that victory over death is ours. And we are the recipients of ultimate power and ultimate love. And that's the point that Paul's making. He spends 57 verses in 1 Corinthians 15, to demonstrate God's ultimate power and ultimate love focused on his children. And then he says, therefore. That should make a difference. If you're a child of God and you're the recipient of God's ultimate power and ultimate love, it should make a difference in how we would live. And Paul says the difference should be that we would be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast and immovable. I just want to give you a, a perspective on this word, therefore. You see, the calling, steadfast and immovable, it's an impossible calling. And maybe you come here this morning and you, you feel beat down from life, or maybe you feel like you're a, a toy boat caught in a tidal wave. Maybe you're exhausted and you don't know which way is up, and steadfast and immovable might be the last thing on your mind. It's an impossible calling. But that's why the therefore is so important because God's ultimate power and ultimate love is directed toward you and in that he's calling you to be steadfast and immovable. The God of that power and the God of that love is for you. The God of that power and the God of that love is in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. The God of that power and the God of that love brings your dry bones together, attaches the muscles and the tendons and grows the flesh and says, hear the word of the Lord. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe. And dead people, people incapable of doing anything worthwhile, people who are tired and broken and exhausted, people who can't even grasp the idea of being steadfast or immovable, God breathes life into them, brings the seemingly dead to life, and says, be steadfast and immovable. And in God's power, we can be. 
God makes people who feel dead come to life. That's why Paul could say, when I am weak, then I am strong. In our weakness, God's ultimate love is expressed in his ultimate power toward us. The biggest obstacle we have to being steadfast and immovable is is our own sin. We see other things as more more valuable than Jesus. But we're not in bondage to sin anymore. We can see Jesus for who he is. We can see him as valuable. Paul says, see, ultimate power, ultimate love. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable on the basis of that power and that love. That's why he says in Colossians, he says, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind where Christ is. Focus on Christ. And we worry and we stress that's rooted in sin because we're not trusting God. We tend to be like Mary and like Martha who said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. We wonder why God allows certain things to happen in our lives. We think if he loved us, these things wouldn't happen. But actually, because he does love us, he allows these things to happen. Why did he allow Lazarus to die? In John eleven four, 4, it was so that we would see his glory. In John eleven forty, he said to them, right before he said, Lazarus, come forth, he said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You think the people who saw Lazarus walking out, covered in cloths, who had been dead and smelly, as Winston said, for four days, do you think that they saw the glory of God? Mary and Martha could not have been the same after they saw their brother brought back from the dead. Lazarus' death was probably the greatest blessing that Mary and Martha could have ever experienced because they saw the glory of God. We talk about, and it's true, that God works things out for his glory and for our good. But we need to keep in mind is that God's glory is our good. And God allows things to happen in our lives so that we can see his glory, and that's for our good because then we can have greater confidence in him and and we can see him and savor him and love him and want him. And our desires are satisfied in him god is the god of ultimate power and ultimate love and that sets our perspective for everything there's a perspective but there's also a people that are the focus of this therefore paul says therefore my beloved brethren who's he talking to he's talking to believers to christians to brothers and sisters in christ and he's saying to my to my brethren you see, seeing God's ultimate power and ultimate love is, is the call of the church. Jesus was raised on a Sunday morning. He conquered death on a Sunday morning. And we come together on a Sunday morning as a church, as the brethren, as brothers and sisters in Christ to exalt Christ. But beyond that even, we sing to each other and encourage one another and we set the vision of who Christ is to each other and God uses us in each other's lives to exalt Christ in our, in our vision. We need to remember, we need to be reminded over and over. And so we come together to do that. And that's why Paul says there um, shortly after where he says, set your mind on the things above. Then he tells, tells the, uh, the Colossians to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to sing to each other. That's why our singing time when we come together at church is not just a placeholder to wait for everybody to get to the service, but is a time that God is using to set our minds and our vision on him so that we can proclaim him to each other. And then we see him for all that he is. So Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren. It's a call to the church. It's a call to his people. My wife tells 
my kids often, um, she says the, the phrase, um, looking creates want. And she says that as a caution to them so that when they see something that somebody else is eating and they want that, well, don't look. It's going to make you want that. Or they see something that their friend has, you look at that, it's going to make you want it. So just don't look at it. Well, the opposite is true also. Looking creates want. When we look at Christ, guess what? You're going to want Christ. We don't look to Christ and then hope to, uh, because, or wait to look to Christ because we want him. We look at Christ and he is more desirable than anything else. And that leads to want. And again, that's why Paul says that we are to fix our minds on the things above. Well, lastly, there's a perspective from this therefore. There's a people of the therefore. And I just want to leave you with the purpose of the therefore. The purpose, Paul says, is to be steadfast and immovable so that we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord. We're steadfast and immovable for his purpose so that we would abound in the work of the Lord. And I just want to encourage you, as you go through this life and you leave this place, you walk out those doors today, that you're going to see people everywhere that are the walking dead. There are people who are spiritually dead and are lost, and God has called us and empowered us through his ultimate power and giving us his ultimate love that we would reach this world for him and proclaim his glory. And that's, that's the call that God has given to us is that we are to be steadfast, immovable, the unstoppable force and the immovable object toward the end of abounding in the work of the Lord, overflowing in the work of the Lord. And guess what? He says here at the end, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. When we do this, our life is not a waste. We're not wasting our time. It's not in vain. There is an ultimate eternal purpose in what we do. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. And it hinges on that word, therefore. The therefore is rooted in the fact that Jesus has conquered death. He has victory over sin. And that means that he, or that demonstrates his ultimate power and ultimate love toward us so that we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for the love that you pour out on us and the power that you show towards us. Thank you that you have conquered sin, that you have conquered death. God, that we can live for you, that we can, we can be steadfast and immovable, that we can abound in your work in knowing that that is what is eternal. And, and uh, God, that we would then be able to see your glory and that your glory is our good. God, thank you for that privilege and may we come from here today just having a a better view of who Jesus is and serve him more wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.